0: Good morning, and welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor, and I personally want to welcome you and thank you for being here today. And if you're a guest, we're especially excited about having you today. Somebody invited you, twisted your arm, bribed you, held something over your head. It's okay. It, this is one of those churches that you can laugh in. If you don't, you're probably going to get frustrated. And because uh, I'm really uh, no, but uh, just want to say it's great to have you. And and um, some of you might have been invited today. My mom has been in town. Uh, all week, and I think my mother has invited like half a Germantown. Literally, she went around the neighborhood. You think I'm joking? And when my mother explains Life Church, it's like everybody should know it. This is Life Church. Well, where? Germantown, of course. And so, uh, anyhow, and so yesterday, so on Friday, I took her out. Uh, shopping. My, my, my wife and, um, and, and five of the ladies from the church were gone to uh, Ethiopia this past week on a mission trip and they got in yesterday and so my mom's kind of been here holding down the fort. It's been nice. Matter of fact, when I walked out of the house this morning, my mom stopped me and said, you're a very good looking man. And I said, Ma, could you be here like every day of my life and say that? But no lie, man, uh, we were out at Mayfair, I mean from Macy's, to Boston store, all there in between. My mother was introducing me to everybody. He's the pastor of Life Church. I'm sure you've heard of it. Love to have you come this weekend, son. Tell them what's going to be happening this weekend. Here's the visa. Just swipe the card. We'll be out of your way. DSW shoes. I thought she was going to like bring the woman to salvation right then and there over a pair of 9.99 shoes. So anyhow, um, uh, if you, yeah, thank God for moms. Amen. If you're a mom, we love you. And Mary-Kate, it is good to see you today. You're my guest. Would you give Mary-Kate a big hand? This is my guest today. I told you I was going to do that, didn't I? So if you get, get mad at Mark Miller, because Mark's the one that told me I had to do it. And I heard you were Miss Oktoberfest at, at Germantown, Oktoberfest, right? What? Well, for Kevin, got to pull some strings there. So it's good to have you today. And I, hopefully I've thoroughly embarrassed you. Have I done that? you want to sing today? No, I'm just teasing. She, there's a joke going on, and she always talks about, oh, I'm going to come to your church, and you have to have me sing. So uh, anyhow, we'll do that next time. Next time. Uh, before we get started today, uh, I, I, I got an email this week from several people. And this message is a little bit kind of serious and thought-provoking, so I thought that I would, um, I thought I would uh, kind of lighten it up with this. And uh, Jay told me to tell you that it is from... Uh, Uh, It is from uh, Adam Doberstein. So, uh, Adam, you have to take that up with Jay, wherever you are. Uh, God asks Peyton Manning, what do you believe? Peyton thinks long and hard and looks God in the eye and says, I believe in hard work. I believe in staying true to family and friends. I believe in giving. I was lucky, but I've always tried to do what's right by my fans. God can't help but see the essential goodness of Manning and offers him a seat to his left. Then God turns to Aaron Rodgers. There's no spiritual content in this. That's when you know that. Turns to Aaron Rodgers and says, "What do you believe?" Aaron says, "I I believe in passion, discipline, courage, and honor are the fundamentals of life. I too have been lucky, but win or lose, I've always tried to be a true sportsman, both on and off the playing fields." God is greatly moved by Aaron's sincere eloquence, and he offers him a seat at his right. Finally, God turns to Brett Favre and says, "Brett, what do you believe?" Brett replies, "I believe you're in my seat." I just got that so many times that I had to do it. Okay, <laughs> Judges chapter 2. If you've got a Bible and you want to, for the, for the sincere part of the message, if you want to turn to Judges chapter 2, and if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Also on the back side of your bulletin, uh, there's an outline that you can follow along with if you want to follow along with the sermon today. And, um, but I'm going to begin reading in Judges chapter 2. The Bible says in verse 7, this page 235 of my Bible, if that helps you at all. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him uh, and who had all seen the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Verse 10. And after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the baals, that was false gods. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. And they followed and worshipped various gods and, and the peoples around them. And they provoked the God to, or the Lord to anger. Now, let me give you a little background about this: how we got to this Judges chapter two, verse seven through twelve, just so you can 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 kind of get this. Back in Genesis, we read that God makes a covenant or makes a promise with Abraham. Father Abraham and many sons. Okay, Father Abraham, he makes this covenant with him. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless you through your inheritance. and And your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore. And so God begins to do that. And he does that through Isaac and then through Jacob. And then Jacob has a son. He had many sons, but one son that he had was named Joseph. And Joseph was a very sharp young man, but the problem with Joseph is that he had this dream. He was very ambitious, and he told his other brothers, Hey, there's going to come a day that you're going to work for me. There's going to come a day that you're going to serve me. And if you say that to a brother, if you've had a brother, that's like saying sick him to a dog. And so it was all like Donkey Kong, and they put him into prison. They sold him into slavery. That's some pretty bad brothers, isn't it? Come on, man. I just gave my brother a black eye. But I mean, they straight up sold him. That's true. Sold him. So... The Bible says that Joseph continued to serve God and was faithful to God because he knew the vision the dream that God had given him. Little did Joseph know that he was going to be what we would call in theology as a Christophany. It's a Christ type in the Old Testament that he would become a savior for the nation of Israel. Because what was going to happen is God was going to bring him into power. And the only way that could happen was through this slavery. He was going to bring him into power and in the nation of, of, of Egypt to be second in command only to Pharaoh. And the Bible says that there was a great famine that went about the land. And through this great famine, the nation of Israel were literally dying. And their numbers were down. It had gone from millions down to thousands. It was very, very small. And they were about to die off. And so Jacob sends his sons that were living to go to Pharaoh to Egypt to see if they could buy grain. And when they go, they encounter their brother Joseph, although they don't know it's Joseph. See, the Bible's fascinating. This is great stuff. And, and they don't know it's Joseph. And then through a series of events, Joseph reveals himself to him, thus fulfilling the dream he had told them about all these years ago. Joseph brings his entire family and the entire nation of Israel, which is now in the thousands, which had dwindled down. He comes, and uh, they come and they live in the land of Egypt. And the Bible says under the leadership of Joseph in the land of Egypt that they flourished, that the nation of Israel flourished, and they grew. But Joseph, as we all do, died. And when he died, the Bible says there began to, there there rose up a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And so in that, they, they didn't know Joseph, didn't understand the whole history behind this, as that typically tends to happen. And so they began to look at all of these Israelites who are outnumbering these Egyptians two to one, and they say, we've got to do something about this problem. So what they do is they go in and they take into captivity every single Israelite, and they make them slaves in Egypt. That's how they got there. That's how the whole... Thing happens. God, the Bible says, began to hear the cries of, of his people and he raises up Moses. And we know the story of Moses. And Moses was raised up in the house of Pharaoh, thus having a connection with Pharaoh. And then he's sent away for 40 years. He has a burning bush experience, comes back, uh, and at the ripe old age of 80, scholars tell us, and he goes to Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. And the book of Exodus begins. And Exodus, uh, Moses leads almost 3 million Israelites at this time out of bondage of Egypt to the promised land. The promised land all the way back to what God had promised Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph, and now fulfilled through Moses. And he's taking them through the Red Sea. But the problem is when they get there, as sometimes it happens with us, they just can't believe that God is really that good and God's really that powerful or God should really do this. And so they can't, they won't, Take the inheritance because they're they're scared, bottom line. And so God says, fine, you're going to walk around in the desert for 40 years. And walking around the desert for 40 years, I will take care of you. But this whole generation that doesn't believe me, that doesn't trust me, they will die off. And Moses, because he loses his cool in the wilderness, which would have been easy to do with this group of people. But he loses his cool in the wilderness. God says, Moses, you will see the promised land with your eyes, but you will never walk on it with your feet. And so God brings Joshua up. So Moses dies, Joshua is appointed the leader, and Joshua, who was one of the original spies who went and said, we can do this, says, let's go take the land. And they crossed the river, and they began to take this promised land. And the thing about the promised land was that it was, it was like it was the motherlode, man. I mean, you could just smell the cash. I mean, it was just everywhere. It was awesome. It was, it was the place to live. The problem was that they had adversaries that they were going to have to overtake and trust God that God would provide for them. These weren't a band of warriors. This wasn't a group of great warriors. These were nomadic people who were farmers, who were slaves, who were basically coming from one generation of slavery into freedom. And so in doing all of this, the reality, here's what happened. They really had to trust God. And the Bible says that the first city that they encountered was a city called Jericho. Now Jericho, the walls of the city of Jericho were so wide that they would do chariot races. Just on the top of the city walls. So without any armory, without any type of of weaponry, the Bible says that God told told Joshua, Go, and I want you to walk around the walls for seven days. And on the last day, I want you to cry out unto me. And when you do, the walls of the city will come down. Honestly, let's just talk, just you and I. That's pretty crazy stuff. I want you to walk around the, the lot in the neighborhood that you want every day and on the 7th day I want you to cry out to me and then I'm going then the landowner's going to come out and going to give you the contract. You're going to have the house for free. Would you do that? You're looking at me like, "No way, man." That that's what that's what was going on. Could you imagine these these people that lived in Jericho, they they're looking and they're going, "What are these crazy people doing?" But the Bible says what's foolishest to man is wisdom to God. And God takes the foolishest things of this world and he defies the, 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 the wisdom of man and he does things. And the Bible says that on the seventh day when they cried out unto God, boom, the walls came tumbling down. And city after city after city after city after city, without fail, without defeat, they go in and they take on this inheritance. Now, Joshua, they have conquered the entire land. And here's what happens. Anytime there's a corporate blessing that happens with the church, there's also an individual blessing and a portion. And the Bible says just in these verses preceding verse 7 that the individual portion had been given to everyone, and so now they are occupying this land. Joshua's job is done, and he dies. And then there raises up these two other generations, the the elder generation and then the forsaken generation, and that's where we pick it up today. But the Bible says that from the Joshua generation to the forsaken generation, two generations later, that there rose up a generation who knew not God. How can that be? How can, I mean, when I'm telling you this story today, this account through scripture that, that takes us from Genesis all the way to Judges, when I'm telling you this, that's pretty fascinating stuff that God did that. It's pretty incredible stuff. And if you had seen that with your own eyes, how can you walk away from it? Well, the problem is is a spiritual problem. How do you go from godliness to godlessness? How do you go from, from being passionate and full of things of God to just totally being away from God? Well, there's three chairs I want to use to illustrate this. And this is what we all go through. The first chair is, would be the chair that the Joshua generation set in. It's called the chair of commitment. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But, but the Joshua generation sat in this chair of commitment. They, they, they knew the things of God. They experienced the things of God. They, they were passionately connected with God. They had an intimate personal relationship with God. And they sat in this chair of commitment. The second seat was the seat of the elder generation. The second generation that Judges chapter 2, verse 7-12 through 12 talks about. And that's the seat of compromise. The, these guys, the elder generation, they, they were the, the, the kids of, of, the, of the Joshua generation, and they sat in the seat of compromise, and they, they had began to settle into the land. They had began to experience all these things, but yet they never really had to fight for it. It was a second-hand faith to them. Uh, they saw their parents walk around the walls of Jericho. They, they saw their parents take in the inhabitants of the land. But really, when they came into adulthood, they came into a very posh and very uh, prosperous Time in the light in the nation of Israel, and they were basically living off the blessings, yet they didn't pay for it. Sound familiar to where we are in our country? It's pretty similar. So, so they sat in the seat of compromise, and then they gave birth to what I would call the forsaken generation the generation that the Bible says in verses 11 and 12 that there was a generation that grew up that knew not God, and they sat in the seat of conflict now. This generation was only, their grandparents sat in the seat of commitment. Their parents sat in the seat of compromise. They sat in the seat of, co- of conflict. The Bible says they did not know God. They had no relationship with God. I don't mean to sound sacrilegious, but just to kind of give you an idea. To them, God was dead. He was antiquated. He was something that their grandparents did that had no relevance to their everyday life. And honestly, they didn't care about him. Now... I want to walk through this in just a minute, but I want you to understand that these three chairs have universal application. This isn't something that's just relegated to the nation of Israel. This is something that we can download today. So to, to show you this, this doesn't just happen in, in, in church terms or in, or in spiritual, biblical terms, but it happens in our lives. Uh, if you do a history just on, uh, let's just take three Ivy League schools on the, on the east coast of Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. If you will do a history on those schools, you will find out that all three of those schools began as divinity schools. They were exclusively theological centers to train missionaries and ministers. You might not have known that. Because today, they're, they're not known for that. But that's how they started. They started in the seat of commitment. You may not also know that if you attended back in the early days, in the beginning days of Harvard or Yale or Princeton, that Greek was, was required, a required subject for every single student so that you could translate the, the Old Testament, that you could translate God's Word uh, from its original language. You Also, you was required that you had to have, a, have, student, have personal devotionals Also that was required at Harvard and Princeton and Yale was that you had to also um, have mandatory chapels. Can you imagine? You had to go to church during the week. And you also had to have mandatory prayer meetings. Didn't know that. But what happened is they began, there was a generation that, that generation that began those schools died off, and so they began to say, we need to reach more and more and more, and they began to compromise or to dilute their, their, what what they wanted to do and what they were about. And so today, we sit in the seat of conflict with these schools, and again, I'm not shooting at them, I'm just showing you, this is a natural progression of things. Uh, Right or wrong, good or bad, it is. And today, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody studying the Bible at Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. You would also be very hard-pressed to find anybody taking Greek or any chapel services or mandatory prayer meetings that are discussed in uh, Student-Freshman Orientation 101. Why? Because there's a natural progression from commitment that we begin to compromise, then we find ourselves into conflict. Uh, this isn't just something that happens <clears throat> happens out there. It's something that happens also in the lives of churches. I want to give you the, the church of Ephesus. You don't have to turn there, but I, I'm going to read some passages <clears throat> Excuse me from the book of Ephesians where Paul talks about the church in Ephesus, that this was a church that started out in this chair of commitment, but somehow they ended up in the chair of conflict. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, this is what Paul says to the church in Ephesians or church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. Having heard of the faith of the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, chapter three, verse 17 and 19, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 14, verse 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Chapter six, verse 24. Grace be with all of those of you who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love that's incorruptible. They were the model church, man. They they were the model church. And and basically, biblical scholars tell us that the church of Ephesus grew to about 100,000 believers within 30 years. Pretty stinking incredible. And you got to go, well, maybe they were in the Bible Belt. There was no such thing as the Bible Belt. Christianity had just begun. It was the first 30 years. Jesus had died, and they began to establish this church. And it was phenomenal. But somewhere about... Uh, 30 years after the church had been, had been, had been um, birthed, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos to die, writes this about the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. How does a church go from, from commitment to, conflict. It's real easy. It's called compromise. Within 30 years of the church, from the beginning to where John is writing about them on the Isle of Patmos, he says, you were a great church. You were a large church. You were an awesome church. You were known around the known world, but the one thing, the thing that got you started, you left it. You began to become about the church. You began to become about steeples and stained glass, and you quit caring about people, and somewhere along the way, you compromised your passion, your love for God. And they sat in the seat of conflict. And now before you think, dude, this is just super, super spiritual. Dude, this happens everywhere. Uh, you're, you're a mid-level manager and you have a new hire and you bring him in or her in and, and they're committed and, and they're doing and then all of a sudden they spend a little time with the company they begin to kind of shave the edges and cut corners and, and all of a sudden they kind of compromise a few things because to make a sale and because they're spinning wheels and making deals and all of a the sudden they compromise some things and then they wind up in conflict because the books are cooked. I got two words for you from Commitment to compromise, to conflict. Wall Street. Don't just make this, don't just think, well, this is just a spiritual thing. No, no. This is a natural progression of things. It, it's natural to go from commitment to conflict because it's a downward spiral. It's an opposite way, it's, it's a very easy way to digress in anything. Uh, 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 take, take a 16 year old. Have you seen the new Camaros? Ooh, oh, yes. Hallelujah. Mmm. GM will rise again. And, man, and the, you, but you take that new Camaro and you put those keys in the hand of a 16-year-old. You will find yourself from commitment to conflict in a very quick amount of time, right? Because <laughs> I promise you there would be some compromise. <laughs> True. See, it happens. It, it doesn't, it's, it's the human state of, of our own humanity. So I want to ask you a question before I go any further. And it's this. Which chair are you sitting in? Which chair are you sitting in? Because here's the thing. I'm not your priest. I'm not the one you answer to. I'm not your judge and jury. I'm a pastor. But the Bible says that we have a great high priest named Jesus Christ that we can directly go to him. That we don't have to go through man. We can go directly to him and make all of our needs and all of our petitions known to him. That we can confess all of our sins and when we we confess it to him, he is always faithful and always just and always righteous and able to forgive us every single time. And that he will take those confessions of our sins and he will cast them as far as the east is from the west. I'm not your judge and jury, he is. And quite frankly, when I get done with this message in a few moments and I walk off the stage and I'm in the foyer shaking hands, hugging necks, kissing babies, I don't stand before God for you. I stand before God for me and how I live my life, Aaron Cole. Not the pastor, Aaron Cole. I stand before God for how I loved and led my family, my wife and my two daughters. And I stand before God for how I preach the gospel to you. But I do not stand before God for you. So I don't want you to walk out of here and go, whoa, this guy, man, he's just like on some cosmic killjoy trip, and he's just just throwing me, dangling, dangling me over hell, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of stuff, and fire and brimstone, and I knew I was going get, to get, get hooked into this deal, and my sister invited me to come because somebody told me, you can get Packer tickets, and I've never been to Lambeau, and I want to go, and now I've got to listen to this guy go on and, on and on and on and tell me how I'm in the seat of conflict, and God's going to kill me, and No. Just rewind the tape. I didn't see any of that. That's you talking. You make the call. You make the decision. I'm not here to judge you. I'm going to simply talk about these three seats, and I'm going to ask you what seat you're sitting in. Now, I will tell you, in the course of this conversation, we start talking about you, and we're not talking about Harvard and Princeton and Yale and the Bible and everybody else. When we start talking about you, there may be something that on the inside of you goes, whoa, man, I'm ready to get this show on the road. That's not a bad burrito. That's not indigestion. You don't need another, you know, you don't need another Tom's. That's the moving of the Holy Spirit, and he's knocking on the door of your heart. That's not me. But we can do something about that. But let's talk about these three chairs. Which chair are you sitting in? The first, I'm going to go back to the chair of commitment. This chair of commitment, this is where God is first in your life. It's in your notes. God is first. The person that sits on the chair of commitment, they have a reckless abandonment towards the things of God. They have a passionate love towards the things of God. They, 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 this, is, this is the focus of their life. And, and sometimes we think, well, this is something that's just relegated to uh, pastors. No, 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 no. When you look at the life of Jesus, when he started his early ministry, what was the first thing he did? He gathered disciples. What did he do for the three years of ministry? He taught the disciples and led the disciples and told the disciples to go make disciples. He dies on the cross, rises again, and just like the Bible says, and what does he do before he leaves to to ascend to heaven? He gathers the disciples and he tells them, go make disciples. That's what this is about. If you sit in the chair of commitment, you say, I am a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, I am a disciple of Jesus. That's real simple. And you may go, whoa, 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 man, you're talking about fanaticism, and you're talking about, you know, whoa, you know, G- the Jesus thing is cool with me, but you're a little over the top. I'm just telling you what he said. Is that he made disciples? He told us to make disciples who that sit in the seat of commitment, people that put God first in their life, not their job first, not their kids first. And some of you can go, well, I think you're overrated. Read the Bible. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? All these things are your job and your family and your kids, your promotion, your bonuses, your house, all these other things that you're dealing with in your world, whatever your world may consist of, they'll come together if you put God first. I didn't write it. You don't dilute it. Cool? All right. If you're in this seat, though, how do you go, man, how do I know? If you cannot remember or you would be embarrassed to say when the last time you had a real true God encounter is. When you really experienced God and God did something in your life. If you can't remember it or you'd be embarrassed to say you're probably not sitting in the seat of commitment. If you would be embarrassed to say or you cannot recall when the last time you had regular personal devotional times with God through prayer and through reading. Where it wasn't sporadic and patchy. And I'm not talking about, well, you just started a new, a new turn over a new leaf on Saturday and you started yesterday. And I'm talking about continuously. If it's been that long, you're not sitting in the seat of commitment. The person that sits in the seat of commitment, they're a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. They live life palms up. God, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll be what you want me to be. My, my finances, my resources, they're yours. My, my life is yours. But you go, man, I'm not in the ministry. It doesn't matter. God doesn't call you just into vocation ministry. He also calls you into marketplace ministry, which means if you're a businessman, or you're a businesswoman, you're a stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, you're working on the factory floor, if you are a Christ follower, God wants all of you, not some of you. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good, but it's true. So we're not talking about a Sunday morning Christianity because you realize that going to church won't save you, Right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. No more than going to Taco Bell makes you a chalupa. It does not happen. Some people go, well, I went to church, so I must be right with God. Wrong. The Bible says that the only way to get to God is not through church, it's through his son, Jesus Christ. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and life. And he that comes after me, that's how eternal life happens. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Again, I didn't write this stuff. I'm just telling you what it says. If you confess with your mouth you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God and he did what the Bible says that he did, that you are saved. You don't have to be a member of a church. Again, well, I was taught, show me chapter and verse. You don't have to be right with the pastor. Well, I was taught, show me chapter and verse. You don't have to be a part of a particular denomination. Oh, I was taught, show me chapter and verse. I'm telling you what the book says. Are you sitting in the seat of commitment? Is God first in your life? Now, the second seat is the seat of compromise, and the seat of compromise, people are first. People are first. Now, I will tell you that I used to think that the hardest time for, like, uh, peer pressure was high school. I think adults deal with more peer pressure than, than students do because I watch adults fold like a cheap suit, man. I mean, they, they, they get in peer pressure situations, and they say things they normally wouldn't say. They laugh at things that they don't think is right. They go along with things. Why? Because they're spinning wheels, making deals. Why? Because of money. I mean, we, we pimp ourselves out for the highest dollar, and we trade our, our gift set for dollars. And we change what we believe and we change who we are. And we begin to, well, everybody does it. And, and it's just part of it. And this is just life. And Man, that's just an old line. That, that's just, that's what my parents would believe. That's what got the nation of Israel into this seat. Is that they were, were like, man, the Joshua generation, they're just a little over the top. They're just, you know, a little zealous. I mean, you know, I mean, come on. Do you really want to walk around the city of Jericho and then cry out to God? I mean, come on. That's just... That's a little crazy, don't you think? Man, go to church, you're going to clap your hands and lift your hands. I know you were going nuts at that YouTube concert, but let's don't talk about that. Let's just talk about this. Summerfest, wow! We're in church, praise God. (laughs) Man, go to Lowe's and get a ladder and get over it. Don't don't sell it to somebody who's buying it. I mean, it just doesn't work. The deal is, is here's what we say. I'm going to be... Do not what I think is right, but what other people think is right. I'm going to go around with what everybody else does. I talked to somebody the other day. Somebody was very close to me. Doesn't doesn't attend church, doesn't live in the state. And, dude, they came at me with both barrels. They're living with someone, and here's what they said to me. Man, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to do it the conventional way. I'm not doing it the way you did. it. I'm not like you. I, 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 I want to I sleep with this person and see if the sex is good. I want to live with this person and see if I can live with them for the rest of my life. And I want to check it. I want to kick tires. I mean, don't you test drive a car before you buy it? That's kind of nice to know that you're on the same level as a used Ford Taurus. But anyhow, and, and I said to him, and I said, do you realize statistically that people that cohabitate, that they live together, they shack up before they get married, that they have a higher divorce rate than people who don't? It's 40% higher. Just in case you woke up in the bed of somebody that you're not married to and you thought that was a good idea. I didn't mean to shoot at it, but I'm telling you, it's stupid. But, but, but not because I think so, but just because statistics show and, and everything shows, but the Word of God says it's sin. And I didn't write that. But we do that because we go, well, our parents' generation did it this way, so we're going to change it. We're going to do it different. You don't have to be so harsh and don't have to be so. And, 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 and everybody does it. And it's phrases like that. It's the same thing. You really sound like a 16 year old when you, when you really talk to an adult who's sitting in the seat of compromise. Again, some of you are going, I just wanted to win the Packer tickets. Okay. <laughs> seat of compromise. Let's talk about the seat of conflict. The seat of conflict is where you're first, God is dead. Religious is for religiosity or, or Christianity is for wimps. You really don't care. Um, <laughs> your heart is calloused and you're living life for yourself. Your God is you. You bow to the God of you. You get up and you look at yourself in the morning and you say to yourself, self, you're the best looking thing on this planet. You better give yourself that pep talk because you're going to need it throughout the day. And everything is about what you want to do and how what you think. And this is what I think. You'll hear people that sit in the seat of conflict because it's all about I, me, and my. Well, I was thinking the other day. Well, I don't know that I agree with that. Well, you know, I don't know that I want to be that narrow-minded. Well, I think you should do this. Well, here's what I think. Well, if I were in your shoes, you hear people using that language all the time? I had to talk, again, another conversation with another individual. That's what he said to me. You're just narrow-minded. This church thing works for you. You're the pastor. You're paid to say that. That's how you make a living. That's how you make a buck. You're no different than anybody else on the street. You're slinging your beliefs and passing the plate. That's what they said to me. Well, what, how would you do? Well, here's what I think. I think it should be like this. And I think it should be like this. And if you really listen to that person talk, you would think that God had died and elected them to be God. And we do that. And we sit in this seat of conflict. And some of you, just let me go here. Men, we're the worst. Because you're sitting there and we're, oh, well, <contagious hottest> oh, I, I, just, I just don't know. <inaudible> oh, that's what I think. Uh, that's what I, oh, I, oh, I oh. It's like a bunch of cavemen. And, 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 here's, and here's the deal I'm a guy too, I got pride too. But pride will kill you. Folding your arms will kill you. Having to have it your way like it's Burger King, your way right away now is the end of death and destruction. Because guess what? You make yourself God and you sit in the seat of conflict. Because you remember back to a grandmother who loved God. You remember back to a grandmother who went to church. You remember back to a grandmother who was faithful to go to mass. And, and although you didn't get it all and although you thought she was a little old, and, and, but, but, but you go, man, she had something And your parents were a little embarrassed of it, so they kind of quit doing it. And now you're sitting in a seat of conflict where you don't know what you believe because you're so convoluted with the duplicity of the world that we live in and the the secular pluralism that comes at us 24-7, 365. And all of a sudden, you think you're God and you think your way's the right way and you fold your arms and you bow your chest like a John Wayne movie. You're sitting in the seat of conflict. Again, I'm not judging you. I'm asking you, which seat are you sitting in? Because here's what's interesting. If you go back and you look and you read the history behind the Joshua generation, the elder generation, the forsaken generation, here's what you'll find. You'll find in the Joshua generation, because their dependency was upon God, and because God was first in their life, and because they leaned so heavily on God's word that if it were to move, they would fall, they never found defeat. I'm going somewhere with this. They never were defeated. And if you read and you do a study and you do the history and you look at the elder generation... Sometimes they won, sometimes they lost. Some battles they won, some battles they lost. And it was because sometimes they trusted in God and sometimes they didn't. And when they got their rear end kicked and they got back on their knees, and oh God, I need you. And then God would rise up and then they would begin to think, oh, look how good we are. And then boom, it would all come down. And if you look at the forsaken generation, they didn't even try to defeat their enemies. The Bible says that they became like them, they intermarried with them, and they worshiped their gods. And they didn't even fight it. How, how do you go from that? To, you see, some of you, you're dealing with stuff in your life. And you're going, man, sometimes I'm winning it, sometimes I'm losing it. Can I tell you the secret? It's what seat you're sitting in. Because if you're sitting in the seat of commitment and you are fully focused on God, I mean You have your focus on him and you live life palms up and you quit trying to do it your way and trying to make God fit your version and try to try to cut the corner here and do this here. And sometimes I do my Bible study. Sometimes I pray. I'm telling you I'm preaching better than you shouting and you do all that kind of stuff. If you'll sit in the seat of commitment, the struggles and the issues that you deal with in life, the walls will come down and you'll defeat every enemy that ever comes against you. And you go, well, I think that's crazy. I didn't write the book. I don't know how many times I tell you I am not that smart. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you. That's God's word. Why? Because the Bible says in Galatians 6, 9 that God is not mocked. That when we sow into righteousness, we reap righteousness. When we sow into God, we reap God. And that, that God has never seen the righteous forsaken, nor a seed begging for bread. And God will not let you be ridiculed to the point that you're, you're at despair. He won't. May not happen the way you want to, but you'll defeat the enemies of your life. But some you go, man, sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down. Sometimes I'm high, sometimes I'm low. Sometimes the sky is blue, sometimes the sky is falling. It's because you got compromise. Hmm. Ouch, on oh me, amen. Hurry up and shut up. Say something because it's true. That was for free. That's not even in the notes. And if you go, man, I'm not dealing with any of those things, it's because this is the seat you're sitting in. You just said, forget it all. I'm just going to do it this way. So, what do you do, man? You go, which chair am I sitting in? What, what do you do if you go, you know, man, I'm sitting in this chair of conflict. I'm sitting in this chair of compromise, and I know this is where I need to be. How do I get there? I'm so glad you asked. You see, water doesn't heat up on its own. And it's always much easier to go downhill than it is to go uphill. Laws of physics tell us that. And it's always going to be easier to sit in this seat than it is in this seat. Because this seat requires something. This seat, you can be brain dead. Sorry, but that's what it is. And the key is compromise of how you began to just go down. And, and if you want water to heat up, you've got to put a fire underneath it. And the Bible tells us that if we want to sit in the seat of commitment and we're in the seat of compromise or in conflict, there's three things we've got to do. Number one, we've got to repent. That's an old-fashioned word, but it's really pretty sim- simple. It's, it's simply this. God, I have sinned and I am sorry, please forgive me. God, I have sinned, I am sorry, please forgive me. Let's just say that out loud for all of us, just just so how, how easy it is. God, I have sinned, I am sorry, please forgive me. That's how you move seats. That's the first step. The Bible says that a broken and a contrite spirit, a heart that's sincere before God, God will never turn away from And again, I told some of you from the very beginning, I'm not putting you in any one of these seats. You choose which seat you're sitting in. But if you're not sitting in this seat and you want to be, it's that simple. Because Jesus Christ paid the price. You don't have to pay it. I don't have to pay it. He paid it all. And you simply repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I have royally sinned. I have walked away from you. I've compromised or I've said that you're dead and that I'm God. And some of you right now in this moment, that's what you're experiencing. That's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. That's the Holy Spirit that's knocking on the door of your heart and saying, I want your attention. It's not me. Look, I'm not that good. Don't give me too much credit. It's the Lord. The second thing the Bible says is that we need to, after we have repented, we need to remember Remember what? Remember the things of God. And some of you, there's two groups of people. Some of you, you have no context. Uh, uh, no one in your family has ever been a religious person, have ever been a Christ follower, any of that kind of stuff. And when I'm talking to you, you understand it cognitively, but it's a whole new thing for you. Let me talk to you for a minute. How do you remember? That's what God gave us the Bible for. Because we began to go back. That's what we're doing today. We're going back and we're seeing a lesson in the life of the nation of Israel, of God's chosen people, of how easy it is from one generation to another generation to another generation to go from red hot to God to say God's dead. And so we remember what God did and we remember and we see how God forgives and we remember and we get that God is not some cosmic killjoy and that you are not some rock'em sock'em robot that he's cosmically controlling you from some spiritual joystick in the heavenlies, that you are a free moral agent and that you have free choice and even if you walk out those doors and go, that guy is crazy, God is dead and the Bible is man's crutch to how to live life, God still lets you go. Why? Because he will not violate your will. He loves you enough that he sent his only son. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but would have everlasting life. For God did not send his son, we forget this, verse 17, into the world to condemn the world. You see, God doesn't condemn you. It's your sin that condemns you. And God loves you enough to say, I hate to see you walking under the condemnation of sin and conflict and compromise. And so I'm going to make a way of escape. And I'm going to give you amazing grace in your life that that can be lifted off of you so you can live a life on this planet the way I intended for you to and on the other side of eternity so that we can be together forever. But you choose. You choose. And you remember through God's word. And some of you, though, there's another group of people that you were raised around church or your grandmother was that way. Because when I started talking about grandmother, that was you, man. And my grandmother knew how to get a hold of God. She knew how to get a hold of me, too, and tear, whip my tip rear in. But, but she knew how to get a hold of the Lord, too, right? And, and I remember my grandmother praying. I remember my grandmother interceding. I remember my grandmother hearing her early in the morning when I would go stay at her house, begin to pray for God, and she would call every child and every grandchild and every great-grandchild, and she would pray. I remember my grandmother. She was an awesome cook, and uh, my grandmother would stand over the stove, and she'd just pray. She'd be interceding. She'd be praying and, and, and just praying in the spirit, and she would just I remember that as a child. I remember my, my, my grandmother, she was so fanatical that if my grandfather was watching baseball on television, which he loved to do, uh, that she would walk in and she would say, Maren, if the trumpet of the Lord would sound and time would be no more, and you'd be watching that baseball game, do you think Jesus would take you back? I do not think so. <laughs> I mean, it, it was Jesus 24-7 with grandmother. She played no games, man. Maybe you had a grandmother like that. And your parents' generation kind of were cool on it. And you find yourself sitting in this seat of conflict. And you may say, man, I'll never be as good as my grandmother. Probably not. Not in your eyes. But you can be redeemed. She's gone, man. But you can go to where she is. You repent. You remember. And the last thing is that you Renew. And the cool thing about renewal, it doesn't happen with you. That's God's part. Cuz the Bible says that when you move from the seat of conflict or the seat of compromise into the seat of commitment, and when you repent and you remember his word, then God begins to renew you and he begins to bring a brand new thing into your life and the old is gone and the new is come. The Bible says that you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. That the law of sin and death and all the condemnation that you've been weighted under, that's been stressing you out, and freaking you out and wigging you out, it's gone, man. And the peace that passes all understanding rushes into your soul. I'm telling you, there's some people in this room that you're wanting to buy when I'm selling. And And here's the cool thing. It doesn't cost a thing. It's free. Which chair are you sitting in? If you're willing to repent, if you're willing to remember God and his word and his statutes then God will begin to renew you and put you back into the seat of commitment. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes at me this morning?